Oh, I'm on. (laughs) Secret talk. Let's let's pray. Well, Father, we we ask please that you bless our time together for this whole evening as we sing, pray, talk, fellowship and sit under the sound of your voice. Please let this uh, word be a blessing to us. Uh, Help me speak what's true. Help us engage and listen well. Please work miracles in our hearts tonight, we ask, that we might be people receptive to your word and transformed and changed by it. Amen. One of the things that happens when you uh, live life, excuse me, one of the things that happens when you live life is that you kind of you grow up in this world, and this was my experience, and I'm projecting, I imagine it's yours as well, and you find yourself you find yourself kind of increasingly looking around, going, "What is this place? What is this world? What is it with the Earth spinning around and the stars?" And you start asking questions about. Well, most thinking people start asking questions about. Like, like, what is this thing? What is this universe? Where did it come from? What am I in this universe? How do people fit? What is it with a woman? That's what I found myself asking a lot. What, 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 what is it with a woman? How, how am I? This, what's going on with women and men and relationships? And all these big questions come. Is that a fair... Do, do you, does anyone else have this kind of thing that they've gone through? Now, I think that's very natural because you're confronted with this incredible place, this existence that we have. Why do I exist? What's it all about? You'll be conscious that as you wrestle with those questions, or at least they flip through your mind, there are two very different answers. There's the answer you get from the Bible, and there's the answer you get from Hollywood. Barbie, for instance. Who's, who's seen Barbie this week? Oh, well, that's not the answer. That's, that's no. <laughs> but you're going, you? look, we can talk later, be interested to get your thoughts and see how right I was last week about my analysis of Barbie. But, uh, you, you know, you'll get Hollywood giving you one answer, you'll get the Bible giving you a very different answer. And that's been the point of Genesis. The thing we've been doing as we go through Genesis 1 to 3 is letting the Bible tell us about the world we live in. What is this place? What's it for? Why is it here? And it's profoundly, very foundational answer. The first thing it says in chapter 1 is there is a God who's before all things and over all things. Well, that is not what you're going to hear in Hollywood, you know. It's a big answer that there's a God who's the creator, who creates not by the emanation of himself, he's not part of creation, he speaks a word that separates creation from himself, but creation comes into existence by his power and force and his intentional purpose. He creates humanity, men and women, equally his image bearers in creation, unique of all the animals. This is all you start to begin to learn in Genesis chapter 1. That is what the world is and why the world is the way it is. God makes it beautiful and good. He invests grace and kindness and love into it. That's the way the world made. You learn all this from Genesis chapter 1. Then you hear in Genesis chapter 2 that God makes men and women different, out of the same stuff, uh, she from him and so on, but different. Now again, that's a profoundly different answer than you're going to get elsewhere, but the Bible teaches this. And here's the thing in all of what it says. The Bible's not just giving us a religious dogma that is arbitrarily imposed on you. That's not what it's suggesting. The Bible's not saying, here is the the Christian dogma that you must believe to be a Christian, and you could choose perhaps to disagree with the Christian dogma and live the secular answer, the Barbie answer, the world, the Hollywood answer, if you like. That is not the frame that's going on. What the Bible's saying isn't, here is an arbitrary thought, 
that you just have to believe. It's saying, here's how things are in reality, like gravity. Do you know, why do we believe in gravity? Well, just because we went through the public education system that tells us there's such a thing as gravity and we just have to believe it because that's what secular people tell you to believe. No, 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 no. We were taught about gravity because that's a reality that you need to come to terms with. It's not just true because some, it's, not, it's not something we believe just because we're told to. It's, be, it's, it's being, being brought to see what actually is. The scriptures, when it talks about God, creation being made purposefully, humans being made as creatures under his authority, given all that we have from him, in his image as special, unique creatures. It's not just giving us arbitrary dogma, it's telling us this is actually the way things are. Do you believe it? And it's telling us if you live without regard to those convictions that come from Genesis 1 and 2, you won't just be disagreeing with the church. You will butt up against the reality of the world that you live in. You'll butt up against the fact that if you live as if this is just an accident and the world's just mine to make of as I choose and you live like that, you'll keep butting up against the fact that it's not arbitrary. There are limits, there's shapes, there's boundaries to it that have been given to us outside of us. You'll butt up against that. Men and women. I I choose not to think they're different. I choose to think we're all just the same. We just look different like Barbie says. Well, you will butt up against realities. Because God says this is the way things are. And ultimately you'll butt up against God. Because if he is the creator over all things, the one who has given us all things, then we are ultimately accountable to him and one day we'll answer to him. He is not just a figment, he is not just a a fiction. And so what the Bible is saying is these things are the reality within which we live. Wisdom is coming to terms with that reality, otherwise you, you will be run over by that reality. Now, when we come into chapter 3 of Genesis, we're taken further on this journey about the shape and nature of the world we live in. What is it? And at this point, again, what we come up with is a controversy, a conflict between Hollywood and the Bible, between celebrity thinking and the Bible. Because when you come to Genesis chapter 3, what we find is that the world that was originally created by God, the good purposeful God with, uh, with richness and glory and greatness and humanity in his image, chapter 3 we find there's a very profoundly important extra piece that needs to be added in. And we're going to go through this chapter together tonight. Uh, I'm going to take you through the text fairly quickly as we often do and I'm then going to try and summarise what it all means in terms of what it teaches about humanity, what it teaches about God and what it teaches about how to deal in the world we live in today. So that's where we're we're trying to get to. But let me give you the headline over it all. What does chapter 3 add to the picture? Genesis 1, purposeful creation. Not arbitrary, not drifting, not not an accident, purposeful. You've got a purpose, specially made by God. Men and women made by God, different. Third piece, what does it add? Fallen. Fallen, broken, sinful. Glorious still, but the kind of glory that is now marred, shattered. Come with the text and let's, uh, let's take our way through this. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than all the wild animals the Lord God had made. The serpent. We're first now introduced to this creature called the serpent, the crafty one. It's an important word. He was crafty. He was, uh, he, he, he was skillful at getting under people and into people. Crafty. 
um, a creature nonetheless. He comes to the woman, he said to the woman. Now, he's crafty, so he comes intentionally to the woman, the woman who wasn't there when the command that he's going to talk to the woman about was given. Adam was there when that command was given. She received it from Adam, so he goes directly to the woman, the second one. Did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And notice what Satan has done, the crafty one. Did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? No, he didn't say that. What did God say? Back to Genesis chapter 2, he said, um, well, where, where did he say this? Verse 16 of chapter 2, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden you like, except one. But he comes, the crafty ones come saying, did God really say you can't eat from anything? Do you see what he's done? He's changed the word and reshaped it. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. Notice what the woman's done. And the man would have done worse. I'm not suggesting that anything there. But we may, we may eat from the trees of the garden. No, that's not what God said. He said you can go for it. Not just that you've got a reluctant permission. Do you see how she's twisted the word here? And you must not touch that tree in the middle. God never said that. So what you've got is a slow twist and shift and change from the generous, rich abundance of God's giving to stingy, less than adequate. The serpent says, you will, you will not certainly die. Now notice the language there. If you compare it to the command, um, verse 17 of chapter 2, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. Now, the way we would normally write verse 4 is, you will certainly not die. But the Hebrew is very clear that the word not actually covers off the certain die words. Satan, the serpent, very clearly contradicts the certain die statement of God. He says you will certainly die, and the serpent says you will not certainly die. Do you see what's happening here? For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, you'll be like God knowing good and evil. The serpent, crafty as he is, now calls into question the motives of God. The reason God has given you this command, this stingy command, this reluctant command, is that he doesn't want you to become like him. He's a selfish God. He wants to keep from you. Verse 6, But when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And notice this, her whole focus and concern is on the superficial look without regard to the God who stood behind it all. Good for food, pleasing to the eye, desirable for gaining wisdom. These are the things that captivated her and so she took and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. In all of this activity, the one who had received the direct command of God, who knew better than all of this, who meekly went along. Instead of being the responsible one, as he was called to be, he drifted along, having abdicated. And he takes some and eats it. There is the process. But look, verse 7, at the consequence. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realised they were naked, So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. When they chose to eat this fruit, 
everything changed. Their world changed. This was the couple who, chapter 2, verse 25, were both naked and felt no shame. Complete vulnerability with each other, confidence and trust, ready to give ourselves to each other. That completely changed. And now they were afraid to be naked. They realised they were naked and pathetically sewed fig leaves together to make coverings to hide themselves from each other. They are profoundly changed. Verse 8, further, when they heard the sound of the Lord God as he walked in the garden in the cool of the day, they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Uh, Now, something we'll look at tomorrow night is actually, what, what are we to make of the Lord God walking in the garden and him asking, where are you? So come along tomorrow night to wrestle with some of these details that we just can't get to through these sort of Sunday by Sundays. The, the, the man answers, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid. What has now come into the garden is fear, which wasn't there ever before. The world is now changed because of their choice. They've hid from each other and now they hide from God. Fear has entered. God comes looking for them and they hide from the God who has given them everything. Now, I don't know, you might be here tonight and um, find yourself actually questioning, is there a God? What do I make of the truth of whether there is? Good questions do. Very thing I did uh, as a young man wrestling through these things. And I want to offer, one of the things that I find compelling about the evidences for God, the core, of course, is the death and resurrection of Jesus. Go there and look at that. Look there first. But one of the things I find very compelling that reinforces all of that and strengthens my convictions around that is how incredibly clever the Bible is. In just a few paragraphs, whoever wrote this, the man who wrote it, has been able to weave together an incredibly complex and rich set of ideas in simple language that communicates so pervasively and persuasively. He has done it with a, with a whole movement through the three chapters that is just astonishing. In its, and this was three and a half thousand years ago. So clever, he was a genius or inspired by God. And I just find the compared to other ancient literature, this is astonishing stuff. And it conveys deep and rich ideas. Everything's changed. They were then banished from the garden. We'll hear more about this next week. Um, the serpent was cursed. The Lord God said, verse 14, uh, we'll actually go a little bit further back to this. Uh, verse 11, who told you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, in a classic abdication the man said uh, well the woman that you gave me all made me do it I'm not the bad person here you shouldn't have given me that woman it's your fault you see how he points everywhere except owns responsibility for himself God goes to the woman and says what have you done and she says the serpent deceived me and I ate everybody's uh, ducking and weaving And so the Lord God says to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed. Uh, And uh, and then there's a curse put upon the woman and the man. And they are banished from the garden. Because, verse 22, look down there of chapter 3. The Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Everything has changed. Banished and cursed. 
So here it is, the point of this passage, remember I suggested three things I want to talk to you about, what it teaches us about us, humans, what it teaches us about God and how we live in light of this truth. Let me give us this first one, what does it teach us about us? We are fallen. We are fallen. A change occurred, they were naked, no shame, no fear, Eden was the beauty of harmony, but after the choice to eat this fruit, fear, shame came into the world, the need to hide, everything was broken, they were cast out. And the key to understanding why such a dramatic change, the key to understanding what's gone on here is understanding the fruit. The tree, this fruit of the tree is mentioned a number of times. You see in chapter 2, the, you, can eat from, you, can, you can eat from anything, God says, just not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it's mentioned again in chapter 3 and again a little later. Now, what is this tree of the fruit of knowledge and good and evil? What is it? it first thing, it's not an apple tree. Right, there's no apples inside. Just get rid of that. There's no, um, there's no, there's no Eve with an apple kind of going, Adam, have a look at this, uh, hardly going to break the universe, eating an apple. It's, it's the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's a mouthful. What is it? What is, what is the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? There's three uh, basic answers that people have given down through the years. Uh, the first two are very popular, the first one's not well known and I want to actually convince you of the third one. The first one is that people tend to assume to, to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is to become someone now who has experienced good and evil. Prior to this point, it said, quite rightly, they were innocent, they hadn't ever experienced evil, but people suggest the language of the knowledge of good and evil is knowing, is people suggest, and to know is to have intimate acquaintance with... And so to now become people who know good and evil is to know experientially good and now evil. Now, what's the problem with that view? What's the problem with that view? It's chapter 3, verse 22. Have a look. The man has now become like us, knowing good and evil. So God actually says they have become like him, but if eating the fruit was about Eve and Adam now experiencing evil, how does that make them like God who has never experienced evil? So that first view can't be right because whatever it is, it makes you like God and God hasn't experienced evil so it can't be that they've experienced evil. That's, though they have experienced it but that's not what the fruit's about. The second very popular view is the notion that to eat the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil is to now know what good and evil is. Previously they were innocent, they didn't know, but now they do know. Um, and it's said that this makes them like God who knows what good and evil is. What's the problem with that view? Well, the problem with that view is chapter 2, verse 17. Where God tells them what good and evil is, which means they already know. Eating the fruit doesn't mean now that they know what good and evil is, like God... They always knew what good and evil was intellectually because God had told them. God said, this is good, this is evil, they knew it. So the first two views don't work as you go through the text. Here's the third view, I think, is the right one. The third view trades on the idea that the language of knowledge in Genesis has with it the idea of being a determiner. 
to, to have the knowledge of something is to, to, to have control over it, to, to have power over it, if you like, to determine. And I think what's being... And many others think this as well. I'm getting this from others. What many people suggest, and I think this is right, is to eat the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil is to become someone who determines for yourself what good and evil is. And so you become like God... One who is the one who determines what good and evil is. And what God is saying is, Adam and Eve, do not eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Do not become for yourself someone who determines for yourself what good and evil is. You submit to me who tells you what good and evil is. I'm the one who determines it. Don't you become the determiner, the one who knows what good and evil is. I think that is profoundly what is going on here. What has happened is that in the choice to eat the fruit, they decided for themselves what now will be good and evil for them. Instead of humbly submitting to the goodness of God who chooses for us what is good and evil, Adam and Eve decided to throw off his rule over them and instead of submitting to his good lordship, they themselves became the captains of their own destiny. The determiners for themselves, their own lawmakers. This is actually confirmed for us in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. 1 John 3, verse 4. John 3 t- tells us that sinning is breaking the law. In fact, it says sinning is becoming lawless without the law. And effectively, I think what John is saying is that the, the essence of sin is rebellion against God. Not just that you break laws... But you decide which laws you're going to break. You decide what law you'll obey. You become the one who chooses for yourself what law I'll keep and won't keep. It's, I, come, I become a person who's outside the law of God and I no longer heed him. I work it out myself. I become a determined. I become a captain of my own soul. I was listening to a... Um, I was listening to, a, a, I've got to do a lot of driving this last little while and so I found myself for the first time ever listening to stuff, podcasts and these kinds of things and I was listening to a Richard Dawkins, atheist Richard Dawkins talking to a Catholic cardinal on a, a TV show and um, watching it as I was driving along. It, um, and it, w- one of the things Richard Dawkins said, if you've not heard of him, he's a famous atheist uh, uh, who um, has travelled the world actually talking about these issues. He said this, he said, the world is an accident... There's no creator. The world is an accident. We're just here by accident. Evolutionary purposes and so on. Which therefore means there's no purpose to life. The world has no meaning. You make it up yourself. You can work out yourself what your purpose in life is. Now I think that's very popular thinking. But understand what it means therefore. Because what we've just heard from Richard Dawkins is exactly what Adam and Eve became. People who worked out for themselves what their purpose will be. Instead of submitting humbly to the God who is the determiner of good and evil. This is important. Sin, when the Bible talks about sin, it's not talking about someone breaking a law simply. It is talking about that. It's not talking about someone who's breaking the law simply. It's talking about someone who makes up for themselves what laws they'll keep and what laws they'll break. 
It's putting themselves in the place of God. Which therefore means a sinful person can very often look moral. Whether a person keeps the Ten Commandments or not is not the issue so much as they've decided for themselves whether they want to keep the Ten Commandments or not. And they've done it without reference to the God who's given us those. Do you see? Let me give you an illustration. This is such an important principle. The, um, it's, it's an illustration that I've used a number of times before. It's, the illustra- it's back from some hundreds of years ago. Think about the teles- an old telescope uh, on uh, old sailing ships, three masts and so on on the oceans. Imagine you're on one uh, sailing ship and you've got a telescope. You, you focus in on another ship some t- distance away and your focus is such that all you can see is uh, a young man scrubbing the decks of the ship you can't see the whole ship you can just see the young man on the ship and so you watch him for a moment as he's active on the boat and you see him scrubbing the deck really hard sweat pouring out from him faithfully working hard the um, the captain of the boat comes along and you know he, he he salutes or does whatever he does in the ancient days and um, the captain says look um one of the other crewmen bloodbeard or whatever you want to call him is uh, you know he's had an accident he can't do his duty this afternoon can you take an extra shift you can hear through the telescope just by the way so <laughs> you can hear them talking and you know the, bloodbeard's had an accident he can't do his job can you take on his extra shift and this young man says of course whatever you need to do to make this ship work i'm all you i'm your man i'm i'm there now question is he a good man or a bad man well as you look through the telescope and all you can see is his activities you think he's a very faithful reliable hard-working good man keeps his word is loyal uh, faithful and so on but then you pan back on the telescope and you, you get more of the context and as you pan back you begin to see that the ship that he's on is flying the skull and crossbones it's a pirate ship. Good man or bad man? You see, at this point, his goodness is actually further helping the pirate ship achieve its purposes. He is so sold out to the purposes of the pirate ship in its, in its um, destroying and, and uh, pillaging that he's working really hard to make the ship go well. Good man, bad man? Bad man. Do you see the point? Sin is not just whether you do morally good or bad things. Sin is how you think about what I choose to do. Do I do it in humble submission to God on his side? Or do I lawlessly rebel against him and work out for myself whether I want to keep the the Ten Commandments or the Sermon on the Mount? And there is why death is our spiritual lot. Because it's, in essence, a rejection of the God of life to live our own life without reference to him. All of this changed Adam and Eve in profound ways, so that now the principle of sin entered into their life and they became, they became distorted and transformed in their very being to be sinners. And extraordinarily, when Eve gave birth to a child, that principle of sin was passed on to the child. So that every human now born receives the principle of sin in that child's life and is born a sinner. Now this teaching is called original sin. 
And its claim is this, the reason you are are by nature prone to selfishness and rebellion against God, the reason you are like that is because you inherited from Adam and Eve. Every human shares the same nature, original sin. Um, You know, Adam and Eve uh, were created neutral, innocent, but now their inner being is changed and so that every single human born has the same changed inner being. And it's a little bit like, let me give you an illustration, it's a little bit like a bowling ball, lawn bowls, have you heard of lawn bowls? It's disappearing fast. If you want to have a go, you better go and find somewhere to do it. But when you play lawn bowls or carpet bowls, you use a ball that's actually got a weight in it. So that when you roll it, it uh, once it, the speed slows down enough, the ball starts to roll towards the weight. Have you seen this dynamic? Um, and there is human nature. We have this weight in us, a gravity in us, towards rebellion against God and selfishness that's born in us. And we can overcome it if we've got enough speed towards something. But you leave us to go slower and just be left to ourselves, we'll bend towards selfishness and rebellion. You see this in disasters. There's a hero phase when the flood happens, the fire happens. And people are able to push out of their selfishness and be generous and sacrificial. But as the weeks go along, the ball slows down and they revert back to to type. And revert back to sin and selfishness. Now most modern people today find this very hard to believe that we're born sinful. But it's one of the easiest things to prove. When you have a child, uh, you you, you watch. No, no, actually what happens when you watch is you think I won't do it like that. I'll have children that aren't like that. You wait. When you have a child, um, you never have to teach a child to be selfish. You don't ever have to say to a kid, stop sharing so much and keep things to yourself. Their whole life is about keeping and you have to teach them to be generous. You you, you don't have to teach them to lie, they know how to lie, you have to teach them to tell the truth. We are born with an innate nature and if, as a young parent, if you don't understand this, I see this so regularly, many young parents today are shocked when their two-year-old reverts to sin, shows themselves... Because I've loved this child, how come they're like this? It's a great shock for moderns, but it's so evident in humankind. Let me give you this in literature. Uh, Who who read the book Lord of the Flies by William Golding? Five of you. (laughs) How many had it, how many... uh, was it ever set as a topic to be studied at school? A book to be st- Yeah, yeah, but you just didn't read it. I get that. Okay. I understand where you're coming from. Well, let me tell you, the Lord of the Flies, it was a book written in about the 1950s in response to a, written, a book written many decades before in the 1870s by a man called Ballantyne. The book back in the 1800s was called Coral Island. And Coral Island was written about three boys who get shipwrecked on a desert island and their experience there. And when these three boys uh, land on this desert island, um, beautiful things happen. The three boys are respectful and leadership and dignity and care of one another emerges and they develop this wonderful society together. And Coral Island's this wonderful utopia that's ruined by adults who come in and wreck things, but they're beautiful and wonderful. 
Well, many decades later, this man called William Golding said this to his wife. He said, it'd be a good idea if I wrote a book about children on an island, children who behave in the way children really would behave. And so he wrote the book called Lord of the Flies. And what happens in Lord of the Flies is, to ruin the story for you, a bunch of young boys are stranded on a desert island and instead of utopia emerging, dystopia happens. The, the, the place descends into... Think, think um, um, every disaster movie you've seen and uh, the, 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 the horrors of jealousy and fighting and uh, uh, hatred and murder. The whole place descends in disaster and eventually they're rescued by the adults who come. And what William Golding is saying is... When you put young children in a place where there's no external influences, what emerges is not beautiful and good. What emerges is the sin that was within us. Greed, jealousy, hatred, hostility, fears, anxieties. These things all emerge because that is part of our very nature. Friends, this is what the Bible is teaching. Humans are made in the image of God to be glorious and noble and of great worth and significant, and you get a sense of that about humans. But because of Adam and Eve's choice to become the captains of their own destiny, we're all born in the line of Adam and Eve with this nature that is sinful. And so what comes now is shame and guilt and selfishness and hostility. Don't be naive. Is this just a dogma that the Bible teaches? Or is it a reflection on reality that to ignore is devastating? Do you mean, you know, uh, there's a generation that's concerned about the abuse of power? Uh, many uh, people I hear talk about the concern that power is being abused in our world and the answer many suggest is the way to get rid of all the abuse that's going on is to stop people having power and if we can just dismantle all the power structures... Everything could be better. And the assumption seems to be that power corrupts. And if I can just get rid of power from someone, they'll be a beautiful person towards others. No, 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 no. no. It's not power that corrupts. It's what's within, Mark chapter 7 says Jesus. It's from within the heart that power is corrupted. We bring the problem to power. And so... All power does is give opportunity for the selfishness and sin within me to have greater expression. And so as you look at politicians who are evil and, uh, and abusive and so on, as you look at their power and the abuse of it, don't be naive to imagine that you'd be any different. Sin is the problem that's in each of our hearts. You see, this passage helps us understand us. We are glorious, full of great dignity and worth, but we are fallen, who need great care to keep us in check. But this passage also explains the glory of God. This passage also introduces us to the greatness of God. You know, one of the dangers of sin, so there's the first point, the second point. One of the dangers of sin is that in our fallen state, we tend always to think well of ourselves in comparison to God. He's the problem, not us. We tend to think negative thoughts of him. 
It's the disposition of our heart. And we need, therefore, to force ourselves to see God for who he actually is and not what sin wants to see him as. He's the one who created and gave. He is properly our ruler. And he was generous and good in giving all that was beautiful. And his command to Adam wasn't stingy. It was, you can eat everything. Go for it. You're free. I've made it all for you. That was the goodness of the Father heart of God. He only gave one command, which was, just don't eat that fruit. Eat everything you want. Now, was it a test? What should Adam have done? What should Eve have done? They should have done what was right, keep the law of God. But they should have done more than that. They should have appreciated that the God who gave that law was not distant, cool and aloof. He walked with them. He was intimate with them. He was a loving father for them. They ought not have believed the lie of Satan that he had only his own interests. He was actually concerned for them. And so they should have loved God and trusted God and wanted what God wanted. Because what we're presented with in the Bible is a lavish God who gave everything to us, including himself. But it's interesting, as we read these chapters, we tend just to see a distant God. It's the nature of sin. You know, we, uh, we fail to appreciate that this same God, who sees the great rebellion of Adam Eve, who destroyed the whole world, this same God, what is his response? He says to Adam, where are you? Adam says, verse 10, I heard you and I was afraid, naked. Who told you? Uh, the woman and so on he sees the evil of men and women but verse 21 of chapter 3 the Lord God made garments he continues to be generous and he sacrifices an animal to make it possible for them to live with their guilt and shame he's an incredibly generous God but he also made this incredible promise and I want you to look carefully at this in the last couple of minutes of our time together have a look at chapter 3 verse 15 grab your Bible look at it there with me In the midst of the curse upon the serpent, God says these extraordinary words in verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He, the offspring of the woman, will crush your head and you will strike his heel. You will give him great pain but he will destroy you, this offspring of the woman. Do you understand what that's just said? Three and a half thousand years ago, God, who has just seen his creation devastated by Adam and Eve's proud rebellion, promises that one day he will bring a child from Eve to rescue Adam and Eve from the power of Satan. Because of his grace and kindness. And the whole of the Bible plays out that promise of Genesis 3 verse 15. Which again is evidence of God's hand at work. I mean what kind of literature can go for so many thousands of years and have the same movement with different authors telling us finally with the coming of the Lord Jesus who is the serpent crusher. Who arrives and is is bitten by Satan. He dies. But in his death, crushes Satan and makes it possible for our guilt and shame to be dealt with eternally. To rescue us back to himself. This God is a God of great glory and goodness and grace. He is the one, therefore, that means we have hope in our sin. You see, who are we? 
Who is God in this picture? And lastly, how do we now live in the world like this? Well, we live in the world aware that Satan is still around, he is crafty, he continues to scheme our downfall and he plays on our vulnerabilities and here's how he does it to you, friends. And you'll you'll see this, when you hear this you'll go, this is what happens to me, (laughs) here's what he does. He makes you think that God's word is more stingy than it is. He makes you think that the word of God is really constrictive and abusive of you and causes you to lose your freedom and your opportunities. He'll make you think that his word is not for your best interests, that it really is God, the aloof and distant lawmaker who is crushing you. He'll make you think that the things that you want to do are delightful and exciting and beautiful and good. And what he'll do is he'll, he'll put to you a, a piece of luscious bait and hide a hook in it. He'll say, that sexual activity that I know God says you ought not touch, he doesn't want you to have anything to do with, which is not true because God wants us to have sexual intimacy in marriage. He's a good God. But he doesn't want us to have it outside of marriage. And what Satan will do is, no, no, it's delightful, it's beautiful, it's good, it's good for your wisdom, it's good to grow up and mature. You'll have this beautiful bait and he'll hide a hook in it that says, you will not surely die. But he hides that you actually will. Satan does this daily to us. He says to us, there's no judgment. That's old primitive thinking. There's no God who will be, God is a God of love. He'll accept just everybody as long as you're decent. He brings the deceit into our world. Brothers and sisters, our challenge is to hear and heed the craftiness of Satan and learn from this the way he works, that we might be forearmed to combat him. And one of the things that he'll do too on the other side for us, and I want to finish with this, is he will undermine your confidence in the word of God that says God will forgive you. One of the great things Satan does is says, you've done it again. How dare you think God will forgive you? Who do you think you are that God will forgive you? And at that point, you need clarity on the word of God, which says he delights to show mercy on sinners. Come back and find the grace of this gracious father who truly wants you relating with him by the merits of Jesus. He's died for you in Jesus to make all of this possible. Don't believe the lies of Satan. Be equipped to know the truth. That our world, glorious though it is, has fallen. That God is good. And yet there's still a crafty one we need to battle. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, your revelation to us that is just so rich and profound and true to our experience of life. Help us please be equipped to make sense of the crafty one. Help us not be drawn in to see his lies, to see the way he distorts your word, narrows it or denies it or makes us believe none of it can be true. Help us to think deeply about these things. We might be equipped to see that all that you call us to is true freedom, is good for us, it's for our joy. Help us to trust you, please, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.